So open your Bibles to Matthew 21. And the story opens up with Jesus. Jesus is a, oh, that's right. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers will give you one. If you don't own a Bible, go ahead and keep it. Matthew 21 opens up. Jesus is, is traveling to Jerusalem for the last time of his ministry. For three years of his public ministry, he's gone back and forth from Judea, excuse me, from, from Galilee to Judea in the city of Jerusalem, back and forth. And it's about, it's about, if you think of Washoe County, the size of Washoe County, it's about 200 miles from top to bottom, 60 miles wide. That is the size of what we call the Holy Land or, or Israel. It really constituted all of, all of Judea which is where Jerusalem was, up to Samaria, up to Galilee where Jesus was born and raised. So it's a small plot of land, and Jesus went back and forth for three years preaching and teaching and, and healing people. And now he's on his approach for the last time to Jerusalem because he's going to be crucified this week. And so as he's approaching Jerusalem, he comes to a town called Bethphage, which is today they're not exactly sure where that is, but it's right outside of Jerusalem and, and evidently close to the Mount of Olives, where they do know where that is today. So if you've been there, I have not been there. If you've been there, you can see that in your mind. And as Jesus approaches, he tells his disciples, I want you to go into the city of Bethphage and you'll find a colt tied up with his mother. So a baby donkey and a full-grown donkey. You'll find it tied up. I want you to untie it and bring it to me. Now, if somebody challenges you, he says, he says, just tell them the Lord has need of it. And it played out just like that. And they come and they bring this donkey to Jesus. So we're going to start in chapter 20, 21, verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And this prophet is Zechariah, by the way, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. If you were to go back to that passage in Zechariah and look at the context, that Jesus is fulfilling this. If you read the whole context, the whole paragraph which it's in, it's referring to this future king of Israel coming in to vanquish Israel's enemies and to set himself up as king. And the, the beauty of the Old Testament and New Testament, the Old Testament is the first 39 books of the Bible, which tells the history of Israel. But the New Testament tells us that Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, all points to Jesus. It's all foreshadowing him in some way. And so this passage is now quoted, Jesus riding the donkey into Jerusalem. This quoted Zechariah, the king is coming in, the son of David is coming in. And in Zechariah, to vanquish the enemies. But Jesus did not come in to vanquish the literal earthly enemies of Israel. What did he come in to vanquish? Our sin, which is our enemy. And so there's this beauty here in this whole sermon today, in the passage of Matthew 21 into Psalm 118, the beauty of how the Old Testament points to Jesus and how the New Testament explains the Old Testament. It's gorgeous. I, I hope you're edified today by it. So the king is coming in to deliberate them from their enemies. Let's start in verse 6 again. Let's keep going. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloak and he sat on them. When he sat on them, he didn't sit on both donkeys. Some people see this as, you know, kind of some conquering king. But no, he sat on the clothes that was on the young donkey. 
Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we'll look at that quote in a minute. But here's the imagery. Jesus has been traveling to Jerusalem, and there's crowds coming with him that have come out of Galilee, and probably probably the Lord brought numbers to him, so the crowd is growing. They're coming, so they're following Jesus. Then there's the crowds in front of Jesus that are coming out of Jerusalem to meet him. So the, the news is spreading. The Messiah is coming. The, the Hosanna to the son of David. That is clearly a messianic termination uh, or designation. The Messiah is coming. So there's excitement. And they are taking off their clothes and laying them on the ground for the king to walk on. They're taking palm branches and laying them down, which is very clearly a, a, a sign of nationalism. Israel, the palm was part of Israel's nationalism. But putting them on the way for the king to come in goes all the way back 200 years before Jesus to, to Judas Maccabeus when he is coming in to vanquish the Greeks. And so this is a, a tradition they have. The king is coming. We're going to put palm leaves down. We're going to put our clothes down. So they're excited. The king is coming. Excited? Okay. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what does the word Hosanna mean? Hosanna is like the word Hosea. And excuse me, like the word hallelujah. We say them all the time, but do we know what they mean? I, I've taught you what um, hallelujah means. What does hallelujah mean? Yeah, it's two, two Hebrew words, Hillel, praise, and Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. So Hosanna is a word that is ancient, back in the days of the early writings of the Bible. And it's a prayer, save us. Save us, we pray. And it became a, a word that, that had a greater, a broader meaning than simply a prayer for salvation to a praise word to the God who does save us. So Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a quote from Psalm 118. We're going to go there in a moment. But Israel is excited. They are excited. Their king is coming. And right now, the multitudes are praising him as the son of David, which is a clear designation, as I said, to the Messiah. Let's look at verse 10 and 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So I want to go to Psalm 118 now and answer the question, Who is this? Who is this indeed? The quote here from Psalm 118 actually gives us permission to read Psalm 118 in light of Christ. It's called the Christological reading of the Old Testament. And here's how that works. If you remember the story when Jesus had risen from the dead, and he's in Luke 24, he's on the road to Emmaus. He walks, he's just walking along, and he meets two disciples of his, but he's been raised from the dead, and somehow he, he keeps them from recognizing him. And they're really depressed. And Jesus says, why are you so down, look, downtrodden? They said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened these last days? They killed Jesus. And, of course, they don't know they're talking to Jesus. And he says, tell me about it. And then Jesus says to him, oh, you foolish men, don't you know this was supposed to happen? And it said there, he went and taught the Old Testament from beginning to end to them to show how all of it pointed to the Messiah. 
And part of that plan was the Messiah had to die. That passage gives us permission to actually open up our Old Testament and look for Jesus in the words. We don't ignore the historical context of the Old Testament, of Israel, it's very important, but there's a fulfillment to it. So today we're gonna look at Psalm 118 with eyes to look for this fulfillment in Christ. Are you with me on that? So go to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is um, the last of five Psalms, Psalm 113 to 115. It's called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise, hallelujah. It's the Hallel Psalms or the praise Psalms that Israel would sing. You see, all of Israel had to come to Jerusalem three times a year to festivals. And this is one of them, the Passover and the, and the, um, Passover and, um, the Feast of Weeks of unleavened bread. And as they're approaching to the temple, they would sing these psalms. So they're very familiar to Israel. And so now Passover is approaching, Jesus is entering the city, and they quote this psalm to refer to Jesus as fulfilling it, as the son of David. Does that make sense? So let's read Psalm 118 and look for this fulfillment. Let's read one through four. Look at the repetition here. By the way, I'm going to do this. If you're visiting today, when it says, oh, give thanks to the Lord, the word Lord is in Hebrew, the word Yahweh. So I always put that in there. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Say it with me, the first one, one again. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, let his steadfast love, or let his steadfast love endures forever. Though, let those who fear Yahweh say, his steadfast love endures forever. We have, we have three groups of people mentioned. Let Israel say this, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the sons of Aaron say, the sons of Aaron were the priests. Let them say, his steadfast love endures forever, and let those who fear Yahweh say, his steadfast love endures forever. What is steadfast love? In Hebrew, this is a very, very common Hebrew word. It's the word hesed. It's actually, in, in Hebrew, it's guttural, chesed, but, but I don't do that well. So, so this is hesed. It means, it means his loyal love, his covenantal love. It means his, his, his undying mercy for you. It's a very, very word with a huge, beautiful range of meaning. That when God says, I love you, using the word hesed, it is a love that will never go away. And so there's praising him for this. Let his hesed, let his steadfast love endure forever. So what we can do is let Cornerstone Church say, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's our praise. That's our praise that we may remember this love of God that he has for you will never end. I want you to think about some of the things you've done that you would say, but I'm not lovable. I don't deserve that love. Did you know what's so beautiful about the steadfast love of the Lord? It's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on your actions. It's dependent on God's character. And when God says, I am putting my steadfast love on you, you're the object of my love. Nothing can change that. Nothing. And so when we really mess up in life and we think, I don't deserve that love, I bet God took it away from me. That's a lie. That's a life in the pit of hell. What that steadfast love is supposed to do is motivate us to live a life that honors this great God who loves us. 
but never believe he'll stop loving you. Ever believe that? Let's look at the next paragraph, starting verse 5. And this is a long one. All of a sudden, the psalm goes to an individual. Talking about I. And most people believe in light of the New Testament, especially when it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. They believe this is referring to the king is speaking now. The king of Israel is speaking these words. Um, Of which then we see that David was the king of Israel and Jesus is the greater son of David who also will be the eternal king of Israel. But verse 5, out of my distress I called on Yahweh and Yahweh answered me and set me free. Yahweh is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. That's quoted in Hebrews 13 for us. Yahweh was on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me in the name of Yahweh. I cut them off. So look for, look for the story of Christ in this. How did this happen with Christ? All nations surrounded me in the name of Yahweh. I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of Yahweh, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of Yahweh, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And so, well, this has clear fulfillment in the person who wrote this, in the king of Israel, whoever, whoever that, whether it's David or someone else, it doesn't tell us. It looks forward to Jesus. And when you think about this last week of Israel, he's walking into Jerusalem and multitudes are praising him. Multitudes are listening up, giving him acclamation as the Messiah coming in, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. But what happens five days later? They turn against him. You don't know how many of these people saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, five days later will be whipped up to frenzy by the Pharisees and cry, crucify him, crucify him. You don't know how many that did each. But Jesus' favor switches throughout the week. The nations turn against him. And in this, besides the Jewish nations, you have the Gentile Roman army there that turns against him. Let's keep going. Verse 13. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is an unbelievable verse. This actually is a direct quote from Exodus 15. Brandon brought this to us at the beginning of the series. Exodus 15 is the song of Moses after God delivers them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Once they get through the Red Sea and the waters of the Red Sea come in on the Egyptian army, Moses writes this song and says those exact words, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. What's beautiful about this is not just that God provides your salvation, he is your salvation. This, This is so important. That a relationship with our God is our salvation. Jesus in John 17, 3, in his last night, as he prays to his father, he prays this, Father, I give them eternal life. And this is eternal life. He defines it. This is eternal life. That they, his disciples, might know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Salvation is a relationship with the living God and his son, Jesus Christ. He is our salvation. 
It's not just what he gives you. That's why we have to have a, a categorical shift. Salvation isn't something given to us simply. Salvation is a person. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit persons. A relationship with them is what our salvation is. Verse 15, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So this, remember, this is being sung as by Israel every year as they approach the temple to make sacrifices. And they're singing about this salvation, the tents of the righteous, and the power of the right hand of God. And Christ, ultimately, where does Christ sit, by the way, right now? At the right hand of God. And according to Ephesians, where do you sit right now? In some very real way. Say it again, Michelle. I sit with Jesus right now at the right hand of God. At the position of power. Because I am in Christ. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. And you sit at the right hand of God, the position of power that has valiant, I can't say that word, valiantly redeemed you. NIV says the right hand has done mighty things. The New English translation, the right hand conquers. All that has been done through Christ. Verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live. And recount the deeds of Yahweh. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Now, how do we apply that to Jesus? How do we apply that to Jesus? The Lord has disciplined me severely. Guys, think of Isaiah 53. I want you to read that today. Isaiah 53. Because there it says that Jesus took our stead. He stood in our place. And by his stripes, we are healed. He bore our sicknesses and weaknesses. He was despised. And all Isaiah 53 talks about this suffering servant who was rejected and beaten and killed in our place. Isaiah 53 talks about for Israel, but it's applied to all who believe. The Lord has disciplined me severely. It's the same imagery that though Jesus didn't deserve it, he took our place. It's very important to think through this. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus, who knew no sin, none whatsoever, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is called the exchanged life. He took my life and paid for my sins. Then gave me his life, which is eternal righteousness, holiness, and a relationship with the Father. So Christ was severely disciplined for us. But it says, but he has not given me over to death. But Jesus did die. So what do we do with that? If we're going to apply this to Jesus, what do we do with that? The psalmist says he did not give me over to death. So in other words, God severely disciplined this king, but didn't let him die. But Jesus did die. We get to Hebrews chapter 5, about verses 5 to 7. And it says there that because of Jesus' piety and the tears with which he cried out to his father, it said that God saved him from death. But he died. How did God save him from death? He didn't leave him dead. 
He didn't leave him dead. Three days later, he rose. So Christ, with tears, cries out to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, is there any other way? I don't want to die. I don't want to experience that. But behind the scene, what's not written in that garden is God saying, I'm not going to leave you there. There's a purpose in it. You're going to redeem many, and I will raise you. And three days later, that happened. So the joy, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Verse 19, this is the gate of Yahweh. The righteous shall enter through it. And clearly he is the first one metaphorically to enter through it because he is the righteous one. Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's what he's called in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And because you have his righteousness, you too now enter these gates. Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now it's gone back to the third, the third person where, um, and everyone's talking now. This verse is also quoted in the New Testament. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So think about this with Israel. This is quoted about Jesus about four times in the New Testament. That when you build a building back then, you take the first stone, you lay it down, and it becomes a corner. And then you build the whole foundation on that, off that one stone. It, it sets the pattern. And Jesus is that cornerstone. Ephesians tells us the apostles and prophets are that foundation, and then we are built upon that. Israel rejected that cornerstone. That, that, that's not going to work for our building. So they rejected him. But the ones the builders rejected became the cornerstone of salvation. And what's the name of our church? Totally coincidental. But it's cool, isn't it? Not, not, okay. I didn't name the church. Michelle did. So, so, messing with you, Michelle. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The most important stone in the building is the cornerstone. That is Jesus Christ. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. That's our word, save us, is Hosanna. So, so here we have a psalm that looks forward. And here twice it's quoted in the New Testament. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the stone the builders rejected. Both of those are quoted in the New Testament to refer to Jesus Christ which then opens up the door for us to look at the whole psalm and ask, use your sanctified interpretive imagination to say, how does the rest of this apply to Jesus? And that's why I've done a little bit of that. Always do that. Whenever you see a quote in the New Testament referring to Jesus, go back and look at the whole context in the Old Testament. And it will blow your mind to see how much the Old Testament, what's wove, woven, weaved, <laughs> woven. What's woven through it is this thread from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the cross and the resurrection and to us as the body of Christ. So what is your response today? I want to read the last of Psalm 118 and the next paragraph of Matthew 21, which gives two very different responses to Yahweh. 118 verse 26 to 29. I hope this is your response today to the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, of Yahweh. 
bless, we bless you from the house of Yahweh. Yahweh is God. And he has made his light to shine upon us, bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. That's, remember, they are, they are approaching the temple to make a sacrifice as part of their religion. So in other words, we, we are coming here because of the Lord, and it's time to bind our sacrifice to the altar. It's time to do what we're called to do. We don't have to do that anymore because Jesus is the last sacrifice. What is it we're called to do? I see your head rumblings. What does Jesus say we're called to do? Love the Lord God with heart and love your neighbor as your. That's our calling. So as we approach the altar, as we approach church, whatever you want to call it, that's what's beyond our lips. We're called to do something. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Then he quotes verse 1 again. Oh, give, to the, oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. For steadfast love endures forever. I don't know, we've talked about it before here. If you grasp, of course you do. I don't want to insult you as though you don't. But I want to remind you, God is good. And think about what good is. Good is the opposite of evil. Pure good is the absence of anything outside of the beauty of God. And so the definition of good starts with our God. Our, what's it say? Oh, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good. And if we can get that deep in our minds, when life hits hard... Some people will say, well, then God must not be good to me. But if we, it is drilled into our minds, deepen us, renew our minds, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that God is good and there's nothing evil in him. There's no sin in him. There's no bad things. He is pure good. Therefore, all he can do to me is good for me. Though life can be tough, never believe God is not good to you. For his steadfast Love endures forever. I hope that's your response today, to give thanks to the Lord, to extol his name, that is to lift it up, to step into what he's called you to do. Here it was sacrifices to us, it's loving your neighbor and loving God. I want to go now to Matthew 21 and read the last phrase there to see how the Pharisees responded to Jesus. Remember, the king has entered the city. The Hillel Psalms are always quoted every year as they are approaching the temple for their sacrifices. And now it's applied to Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he has come on a donkey. A conquering king would come on a steed, not a baby donkey, because he's humble. His humility is on display. Remember that, his humility is on display. 21.12 of Matthew. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of money, change, money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Remember this. To be a truly humble person is not to be a pushover or a doormat. Jesus was neither. But this humble man, the king coming on a donkey, walks into the place of, that is designed for his father's worship. And actually John tells us that he sits down 
and he gets a cord and he weaves it. So this is not Jesus losing his temper. This is Jesus being deliberate. He weaves together a whip and then he stands up and goes after those who have turned it into a, a den of thieves. You see, Israel is dispersed all over the Mediterranean world and three times a year they must come back to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice. They can't bring their lambs with them or their turtle doves or anything else. So they bring money with them and they, they bring their money with them and exchange it for the temple money. Then they take that money and they go buy the sacrifice. In and of itself, not bad. But then what are the money changers doing? They're ripping them off. It's like if you don't understand today, if you go to, to a foreign country and exchange it, you don't understand the exchange rate, you're going to get ripped off. So they're ripping off their own people. And then the, the people selling animals are gouging prices. So they're turning what's supposed to be a holy event into a, a, a money-making opportunity at the expense of their own brothers and sisters. And Jesus freaks. That's not fair. Jesus brings retribution. Then what does he do? Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So just get this in your mind. Here comes Jesus. He comes in with his whip that he's made, and he wreaks havoc. He turns over the table of the money changers. He chases them all out. One man turns over the entire temple. Then he sits down, and people bring the lame and the blind to him, and he heals them. The compassion of our Savior. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes, who were the religious leaders of the temple saw the wonderful things that he did. Get that in your mind. When the people who don't like Jesus, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, when they saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children cried out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were really impressed. Indignant. It's an amazing sentence. They see the beautiful, wonderful things Jesus does for the downtrodden, and they are peeved. Children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? Another Old Testament quote. Luke tells us more. Luke tells us that he says this. I tell you, if these children were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Messiah, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem before he's crucified, is going to get his praise. One way or another. The adults aren't impressed right now, the leaders of the temple. The people who say they represent him aren't impressed so the children bring the praise he deserves. And then it says, leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. Bethany was two miles away. And Jesus, last week, that's where he stayed, was Bethany. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. So your response. We see two, two here. The Psalm 118, the response is you praise him and live a life that reflects he is your God and Savior. That's one response. Here's the other response, and that is you see the wonderful things he has done, but you reject him. My guess in this room, most of us fall into the first category. I hope all of us do. These two are pretty far apart from each other. 
to praise him or to reject him? I would actually say there's a middle ground. It's not mentioned in our text here, but it's mentioned in other parts of Scripture. The middle ground is to be indifferent to him. To go through the motions of being a Christian, come to church periodically, um, maybe give some money periodically, say you believe, but really, in your indifference, your life does not reflect who he is. Jesus talks about this. Your lips say you believe in me, but your heart shows you don't. There's a group of people in Jesus' life, Matthew 7, at the end of the chapter, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, many will come to me on that day, that is the day of judgment. Many will come to me on that day. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal people in your name or do miracles? And Jesus says, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Not I knew you, it did good for a while, then you lost it. I never knew you. And Brandon and I were talking about this passage the other day, that one of the fears of our ministries is that someone that we minister to regularly, you, will hear those words. Depart from me, I never knew you. That someone can come to church their whole life, listen to the teaching of the word of God, appear to be one of the children of God, but inside they really are indifferent. Their lips say they believe, but their heart is far away. And so today we're going to take communion in a moment. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, I'll, I'll just make this presumption. There's minimal to no people in this room who flat out say, I reject Jesus. Most likely if you, you wouldn't be in this room. I trust and hope that you are the ones that say, I praise and extol him and I give my life to him. And yes, I live that life imperfectly, but it is my heart's desire to pursue him. But if today, if God's revealing it to you now, that your lips say that, but your heart is far away, now is the time to remedy that with communion. Communion is a... A ritual, some people call it a sacrament, a ritual that gives us a physical reminder of what Jesus did for us. The bread represents his body, that Jesus, the eternal God, the eternal son of God became human and took on a body just like yours and mine and lived the righteous life that we could not. He was, lived every way we did, dealt with all the life's struggles and everything like us, but he never gave in to sin qualified as our savior. The cup represents his death. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, the book of Hebrews tells us, and Leviticus confirms that. So because he's qualified, because you see in the Old Testament, you couldn't take a broken down lamb. You couldn't take the one that was already dying and give it to God. You took the perfect specimen, the one that cost you money. Jesus is the spotless lamb of God, John the Baptist calls him. So this physical reminder is a reminder of what Christ has paid for us to redeem us, to forgive us, to change our lives, to be those who with all their heart extol and praise our God and not give lip service only. So today, if you've been given lip service, before we take communion, repent. 
turn from it. Talk to him. And if that's genuine, then come forward and get the elements. Be careful on taking the elements of communion with a cold heart. It doesn't please our Lord. So here's what we're going to do. I want you, the worship team's going to come up. And I'm going to pray in a moment. Then I want you to come up and grab the elements, go back to your seat. We do it differently around here. Often it will be we take them all at one time together. But I want to go back to the way we used to do it. We, we had done it in the past. As you come and get the elements, go sit down, talk to the Lord about how you're, you're doing today. If your walk is great, thank him for the power to do that. If you've been walking away, come back to him. If your heart has been hard, ask him for that new heart, that living, beating heart for him. That becomes, what is your word, Elena? Preoccupied, Preoccupied with Jesus. And what I want you to do as the, um, they're going to play music lightly and just sit there in your seat, pray. And when you're ready, take communion on your own. Or so the person next to you, pray with them. Um, and then in a few minutes, um, the team will um, sing our last song. Does that make sense? So after my prayer, please come get the elements. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your amazing plan. And this, this day, the first day of Holy Week, we call it. Jesus comes in triumph. Um, but it goes south after that. The sadness of that, Lord, is that that was your plan to redeem us. And what a glorious redemption we have. So as we participate in communion now, Lord, encourage our hearts. Convict our hearts, Lord, if there's some things in our, our lives and sin and things like that that we haven't dealt with before you this week. Wash our sins white, Lord. Just remove them. Give us that true experience of realizing the lifting of the burden because Jesus took it on the cross for us. This king, the son of David. And Lord, help us to stand up to the last song and truly praise and extol your name because you are worthy. You are good. All because of Jesus we can pray this.